0: We're continuing a series this morning on stewardship, uh, on the subject of stewardship. It's called Faithful Servants and um, it's really based on the central premise that God has put lots into our lives. He's invested all kinds of good things into our lives and our responsibility is to look after them well, to be good stewards with those things. We said the other week that perhaps the main subject of the teaching of Jesus, especially the parables, is, is really this recurring question, which is, what are you doing with what God has put into your life? What are you doing with all the good things that God has put into your life? That's pretty much the deal. And so uh, when we meet him face to face, what we're longing for is that he'll sweep us into his arms and he'll say, well done, good and faithful servants. You've been faithful with what I gave you. Now take charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. That's what it says in Matthew chapter 25. And so that's kind of where we're going with all of this thing. Um, that's the dream. The well done. That's, that's the dream. That's what we're living for. That's what we're longing for. That's what Jesus is longing to give to us. And what we said, if we could just have the next slide What we said the other week is is that there are four R's, uh, four principles of great stewardship. How would we be great stewards? The first thing is we'd recognise that everything we have, everything we are, it belongs to God. So um, your house is not your house, your wife is not really your wife, well she is your wife, but uh, uh, it's, it's... she's no she's not God's wife she anyway you know what I mean your your car is not your car Uh, the gifts and skills and abilities they don't belong to you they belong to God everything belongs to God everything that's in the world everything that lives in the world belongs to God that's the first thing that's very important we recognize the second thing is responsibility we don't own anything but we are responsible for things it's not your house but you are responsible for your house They're not your gifts and skills and abilities, but you are responsible for them. And you're responsible for putting them to work in the way that the owner would like. So we're trying to find out all the time, Lord, what do you want me to do with your stuff? Uh, And what does that look like? Responsibility. Number three, reckoning. One day we'll give an account for how we've lived and what we've done with the stuff that we've been entrusted with. And lastly, reward. We saw in Revelation 22, Jesus says, look, I'm coming soon. My reward is with me, and I'll give to each person according to what they have done. There's a reward for everything, every sense in which we've been faithful. There'll be a reward. And so in a sense, what we're going to be doing over the next few months, perhaps as far as the summer, is trying to apply those four R's. To all kinds of areas of our lives. What are we doing with the time that we've been entrusted with? What are we doing with the family that we've been entrusted with? What are we doing with the skills that we've been entrusted with? And today, we all knew it was coming, and I just felt like today was the day. So we're going to look at what are we been, what we're we doing with the money that we've been entrusted with. And the reason we're doing it today is because we're not dedicating any babies. Uh, you know, there are. Uh, it's not a big. So we're expecting to have hundreds and hundreds of visitors. So it's kind of a family day where we can talk about what are we doing with the money that we've been entrusted with, something that is incredibly important to the Lord. So uh, we're going to be reading from Philippians chapter 4 and the context of this is um, if your parents were anything like my parents, there was a moment that came shortly after Christmas where, where my parents made me sit down and write thank you letters. Right? And, and the book of Philippians is in so many ways a thank you letter. The Apostle Paul is in prison, most probably in Rome, and um, the Philippian church, who are dear friends of his, have taken up an offering, and they've sent the offering with this guy Epaphroditus to, to, to keep him alive. And he's, he's so thrilled that, that his friends in another part of the world have sent him this gift, and it's keeping him alive. That he's written in this letter to say thank you. And so we're going to read from Philippians four, verse ten. He says this I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles moreover as the Philippians know in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel when I sent out when I set out from Macedonia um, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only for even when I was in Thessalonica you sent me aid more than once when I was in need not that I desire your gifts what I desire is more be credited to your account I've received full payment and have more than enough I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They're a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. We have dear friends of our church, Leslie and Shanti Matthews, who you all have heard us talk about if you've been around for a while. Um, It sounds like a very British name, doesn't it? Leslie Matthews. But actually, they're not British at all. They're Tamil people from Sri Lanka. And they've been planting churches and serving widows and orphans in Sri Lanka uh, right the way throughout the Civil War in the most horrendous of circumstances. In so many ways, they, they should have common sense says run away from trouble and yet they've often run towards uh, um, camps for displaced people they've often run towards uh, uh, Tamil Tiger territory and all of that stuff in order to preach the gospel to as many people as possible and their lives are really ones of fasting and prayer and spiritual battle that's that's how they would describe their lives even and lots of what they do um, or during The process of lots of what they do they experience the powers of darkness in the most tangible and visible ways so often they'll go to a a village they'll go to preach the gospel there uh, and suddenly there'll be someone who is affected by a demon throws themselves on the floor or is thrown to the floor they're foaming at the mouth they're speaking in voices that don't belong to them they've got superhuman strength it's the kind of thing that you may have maybe have heard about or, or or watched in those sort of slightly weird late-night documentaries, it's horrible, and it's in your face. And they experience it nearly every day. And um, often we've sent teams across to to visit them, and and the teams have come back saying that the spiritual um, temperature or the spiritual battle that's going on there is unbelievable. And so Leslie and Shanti were here a few years ago, and and I had lunch with them, and I was saying. I'd be fascinated to hear. What do you see when you come here to Aberdeen, and and you you know you experience the culture here and society here and all of that? What do you see? And they said, we find it incredibly dark and oppressive in Aberdeen. I was like, I'm sorry, what? You you know, you see demons and and you know superhuman strength, people speaking in funny voices. What do you mean? And they said, we, we find the oppression and the darkness here almost overwhelming. They said, they said that, that rampant consumerism, the, the, the profound selfishness, the, the um, uh, self-reliance and all of that is like, it is like darkness on a, on a systematic, um, uh, oppressive level. It's unbelievable. Uh, and we find it very hard to be here for any length of time. How fascinating is that? There was another guy, uh, Pastor Sana, who came to visit us as well. He was also from Sri Lanka, came years ago now. And I'll never forget it. He was speaking to a group of young people and students in the downstairs hall. And I think he was speaking about the Holy Spirit and, and the power of God and things like that. But anyway, right at the end of his talk, he just said, this has nothing to do with what I've been talking about, but can I just say this? He said, I feel like God wants me to say to you, you have enough now. You have enough now. And the point is that this is, this is a perspective that comes from outside our culture. And, and, and it's talking about what they recognise and, and see is, is completely obvious. That we can't see. Which is why it's incredibly important in all areas of our lives that we find out what does the book say about how we're to live our lives. Because if we live our lives according to the way that our surrounding culture teaches us, if we live our lives according to the, the way that other people tell us in, in our culture to live our lives, then we, we'll be missing out on a whole load of stuff that we're completely blind to, and we could well be in serious error. And so this book becomes incredibly important for us that's really the deal and so what I want to do this morning is to draw out three principles of great stewardship when it comes to money how how does the bible say that we should look after our money not how do how does uh, you know advertising and magazines and newspapers and the tv how do they tell us to look after our money but how does the bible say that we should look after what isn't really our money ultimately it's the lord's money and the first thing is simplicity God is calling us to live very simple lives. Paul says this. He says, I've learned the secret. And he's using, uh, he's borrowing language from Greek philosophy. Greek philosophy was all about discovering the key, the secret to life, the, the enlightenment, the, you know, the way to, to, to knowledge. And he says, I've learned the secret. And it's actually, he says, the secret of being content, which is ultimately what we all want to know, isn't it? We all want to know. How do I find peace in this life? How do I find contentment in this life? That, you know, Right the way across this region, there are people who seem like they're having a good life, but they're living lives of quiet desperation and they're longing to know, how could I find contentment in my life? And ultimately, our society says, contentment is found in the possessions that we have, either in the gadgets that we have. You know, um, there's one word that we hear all the time, that that communicates to us in our society, uh, contentment, and it's the word upgrade. Yeah? Yeah. You know, obviously you're not happy in your life at the moment because you've only got an iPhone 5. I mean, no wonder you look so miserable. No wonder you're unhappy. But soon the day is coming when your contract comes to an end and you will receive an upgrade and that will be the moment of peace and joy and happiness, right? Contentment is found in gadgets or our society says that contentment is found in making sure that you have a large financial cushion, right? So, so, if you have invested your money wisely, your pensions are in place, you've got savings set aside for a rainy day, if nothing can touch you, if you could lose your job and you would still be okay, then you'll be content because what keeps you awake at night is not knowing where the next penny's going to come from. Then you'll be content, a sound financial cushion. And what Paul's saying here is, I've learned, I, I've had lots of things there's nothing wrong with having a phone. There's nothing wrong with having a pension. I, I've known what it is to be in plenty. And I've also known what it is to be in want. And I've been content in both circumstances. In other words, he's breaking the link between what we have and peace and contentment in this life. He says, "Peace. And, if you're looking for peace and contentment in this life, and you're looking towards the possessions that you have and the investments that you've made and the money that you have, you're looking in the wrong place. It's not about what you have, it's about who has you. It's about who has you. Just look at what he says. I know what it is to be in need, verse 12. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this Through him who gives me strength. That's where the contentment comes from. From a relationship with a person, not possessions, but with a person who will provide us with the peace and contentment that we need, whether we have the newest phone or we really don't. And in fact, Jesus takes it even further. He doesn't only break the link between owning things and being happy. He wants to say, if you don't need it, don't keep it don't keep what you don't need he tells the parable doesn't he of a man who's um the director of an oil company and the oil company's doing really well and despite the downturn in the you know the the oil price this oil company's done well because it's developed a particular kind of valve for a pipe and a widget uh fluid dynamics something like that and anyway so he's got this little widget and it's doing really well It's, it's selling like hot cakes or hot valves and as a result of that, his company's doing really well. And there's lots of dividends being paid to, paid to the shareholders. And he's just got a massive payout from his company. And so he thinks, what should I do with that? So he sees his financial advisor. And the financial advisor says, well, what I would do with that is I'd open another bank account and just put the money into that bank account, say, for a rainy day. Uh, I mean, that's not exactly the way that Jesus tells it you know he says well a farmer has a big crop and he builds a bigger barn but it's the same kind of idea and do you know the word that Jesus uses to describe someone who just builds a bigger barn opens a new bank account to store their possessions he says you fool you're an idiot you're an idiot because eventually moth and rust will take it away you can't take it with you it'll just disappear If you don't need it, don't keep it. Taryn and I, for the last two days, we've been in Glasgow uh, meeting with vineyard pastors from around Scotland and um, we did some teaching yesterday to a bunch of leaders gathered from around the vineyard churches, which was really fun. But uh, we we stayed in a hotel for for one of the nights that we were there and it was really nice. Uh, But just imagine, you know, on that one night, Taryn and I walked into that hotel room and we said, yeah, nice hotel room, but I don't really like the wallpaper. Why don't we just wheel someone in and we could, you know, develop the wallpaper, make it nicer, you know, bring someone in, get, get, get it repapered. And let's get some rugs in and some more soft furnishings, perhaps put some new curtains up. You'd all say, Chuck, you're nuts. Why are you doing that? You're only there for one night. You're, you're there for such a short time. What's the point of redecorating? And the point is, we are here on this earth for such a short time investing and and spending what we don't need in this life is a waste of time and a waste of money we should invest it in eternity where it will last forever and of course that's what Jesus said don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust distor- destroy store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust does not destroy so our calling is to simplicity. Uh, Jesus says, Luke 12, verse 33, Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. Uh, so so the first thing is simplicity. And, then, and in fact, uh, there's a book... Uh, quite a well-known book called A Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster. Many of you will have read it. If you haven't read it, my recommendation to you is that you get hold of a copy. You'll almost certainly be able to get one on Amazon for 1p or something like that. You know how it works. Uh, But buy that book just for the chapter on simplicity because there are some questions in there that will really, really burn at the point when you're mooching around Union Square wondering whether to get that extra pair of shoes. And they're questions like... Am I buying this thing for usefulness or for status? Am I buying something that feeds an addiction in me? Am I buying this because I've bought into the marketing propaganda? Will my buying this breed oppression for somebody else, somewhere else in the world? And will this thing I'm buying bring me closer or further away from God? Really, really important questions. So, number one, simplicity. Number two, generosity. We're to live on as little as possible so that we can give as much as possible away. Uh, a whole bunch of years ago in our church, we used to, to serve tea and coffee and biscuits to, to people who were visiting on the basis of BYOB, bring your own biscuits. And it wasn't, it wasn't that we expected the visitors to bring their own biscuits. It was that it operated on a rotor system and... When it was your small group's turn to serve tea and coffee, you had to bring the biscuits. And what was fascinating about that, and we can look back and laugh now, is that, that whenever it was, it was a small group's turn to buy biscuits, inevitably it was as the smart price rich tea biscuits that were bought. And, and as a leadership team, we were just reflecting on that. You know, you, you go around to somebody's house and, and they want to roll out the red carpet to you. They bring out the cafetiere. They, they grind the coffee, you know, put the nice fresh coffee in. And they, 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 they go to the back of the drawer where the Tesco finest cookies are. And they really want to make you welcome. And in our church, we were welcoming people with Tesco value and smart price. You know, rich tea biscuits, welcome to our church. And so we were just reflecting on that as a leadership. How on earth did that happen? How is it that we worship a God who is unbelievably, extraordinarily, extravagantly generous and somehow we've become not especially generous just in that moment? And it's funny now, we laugh about it now. Um, grace and uh, an abundant generosity are are a central feature of the character of God. You know, if you think about the way that God created the cosmos in Genesis chapter 1, he didn't say, let them have a world that's like made of concrete and it's just a bit boxy. He didn't say that. It, it was like everything about his creation is extravagant, is exuberant, is gracious. He said, he didn't say, let there be one fish in the sea. I don't know if I was thinking that funny voice. Let there be one, no, one fish there, one fish there, one fish there. He said, Let the waters teem with fish. Let the air be filled with birds. Let the land be, you know, filled with animals that, that crawl along the ground. It was like, just let there be loads of everything. Let there be an abundance. Let there, let there just be lots. Just so generous. And then when God revealed his character to Moses, And Moses was hiding in the rock and God passed by. Just this precious moment. And in that moment, this voice comes out uh, and it says, uh, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. That was how God chose to reveal himself. The gracious God. Just so generous. And in fact, that is the God we meet in the whole of the Bible. We think about the Old Testament. God's people being relentlessly disobedient and unfaithful. And yet God is relentlessly gracious relentlessly generous always giving forgiveness always giving more than they deserve and then God sends his son the ultimate demonstration of his own generosity and Jesus walks around on the earth and in his teaching he's just again and again talking about how generous his father is says things like if you then though you are evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him he says don't be afraid little flock for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom just always testifying to the generosity of his father and then of course the next thing that happens is that is that Jesus gives his own life a gift that we so desperately need and obviously don't deserve extravagant generosity and we reflect the nature of God we reflect the character of God when we too are generous it's sad, so sad isn't it that Christians have become known in our world as people who are so mean how has that happened We should be known as the people of extravagant generosity because we worship a God and and we're being formed into the likeness of a God who is extravagantly generous. Now the truth is that we probably all think that we are generous, don't we? You know, uh, there was a survey done of uh, uh, university students and it asked them, are you a good driver? And 93% of university students describe themselves as an above average driver. Now the maths on that don't work today, but everyone perceived themselves to be a really great driver. The same is probably true of us with generosity. Many of us would perceive ourselves as being generous. But the question is, are we generous in biblical terms? I want to suggest that there are a few benchmarks in this passage for uh, what does generosity look like? How do we measure whether we are generous or not? The first thing is generosity is giving beyond need. We don't know how much food Paul had in prison before Epaphroditus brought this gift. But he does tell us how much food he had after the, the gift was brought. In verse 18 he says, I have more than enough. I'm amply supplied. Now the question is, was it that the Philippian church said to Epaphroditus that want you to go to see Paul in prison, find out a budget, you know, find out exactly how much he needs, and then come back, and then Epaphroditus came back and said, Well, we've worked it all out. He needs two hundred and seventeen pounds and fifteen pence. And so they write out a cheque for two hundred and seventeen pounds. fifteen pence and then they say, Make sure you get a receipt. Probably not. Probably they just said, hey, how much could we give? Let's give him way more than we think he might need. Let's just give as much as we possibly can. And so he ends up with way more than he needs. Kingdom generosity, the, the balance of power for kingdom generosity is not with how much do they need, it's with how much could I give if I really went for it. That's the first thing. The second benchmark for generosity is giving beyond comfort. Probably for many of us, when we think about how much money we're going to give away, give give to the local church, give to mission or, or whatever, we're probably not that deliberate in the way that we do it. But it, it, if there's any sense in which we give deliberately, we probably do it like this. We probably say, well, the money comes into my bank account, perhaps on the 25th or the 26th, 27th of the month, whatever it is. And then we all we all know that horrible moment. You know, We've looked one day, bank balance is good. And then the next day, all the direct debits go out, don't they? You know, rent or the mortgage, the utility bills, council tax, the phone bill, all of that stuff goes out, the Sky TV, whatever it is. It all just goes out, fourth, fifth of the month and all of that. And you're like, oh, no, where did all my money go? And, and then we think, well, we need to buy food and petrol for the car. And, you know, if we're really organised... Put money aside for a summer holiday. Put money aside to buy Christmas presents. Put money aside for the pension. Put money aside for savings for a rainy day. So all of these things go out, and then we figure out, well, okay, now what am I left with? Oh, two pounds and seventeen pence I'm left with. So Lord, how much of this two two pounds seventeen pence would you like me to give to your work and the extension of your kingdom? That's how many of us operate our financial resources. But it's clear that the Philippines didn't do that. They were extraordinarily generous. We know from elsewhere in the New Testament that the Philippians gave in a deeply sacrificial way. And there's a moment where Paul is taking up an offering for the church in Jerusalem who are experiencing persecution and a significant famine and they're all starving. And he takes up an offering and the Philippian church, it says in, in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 2, that it talks about the Macedonians, but the Philippian, Philippi was in Macedonia in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 2, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability to give. So this is not just giving what they could comfortably afford. Generous giving means giving beyond what we think we can afford, beyond the level of what we could comfortably afford. This is giving beyond comfort. Number three uh, uh, benchmark is giving beyond grand gestures. Do you know, I love in our church the, those moments of generosity that we see happening all the time, those moments where someone is in need and somebody else becomes aware of the need and suddenly that need is met. And that happens all the time. I've seen cars bought for people. I've seen boilers bought for people. I've, uh, I've seen uh, extraordinary gifts of of. Uh, you know financial gifts or food gifts or whatever to people who really need it in that moment and I love that about our church and we should never stop doing that but the Philippians they're they're not only operating at the level of oh there's a, a big moment here where I could you know have a big grand gesture it's probably a bit emotive in a negative way and I don't mean it to be but but they're giving beyond that because we know verse 15 that they were the only church to support him when he set out from macedonia we know that when he was in thessalonica they sent more than one gift so at least two gifts we know that they sent the gift to the church in jerusalem and now that he's in prison and he's in need they're giving another gift so this is habitual giving this is regular giving this is committed this this isn't just oh uh, occasionally i'm aware of a need and I, i give it this is no no this is giving as a lifestyle generosity is a lifestyle regular giving it's a habit. And then the last benchmark of generosity, and I've never said this. I've never stood on this stage and said this before. So, uh, you know, strap in your seatbelts or whatever the phrase is. I believe that generosity is giving beyond a tithe. It's giving beyond a tenth. And let me just explain what I mean. Uh, for years, I, I, I've been um, one of the, the senior leaders of this church for nine years or something like that. And I've stood here every year and, and talked about generous giving and giving to the ministry of the local church and what the line that, or the decision that we've taken as a leadership team is to try to avoid legalism as far as possible and to not just burden people down with things that they feel like they ought to do because that's not grace that's not the gospel we're not under the law and so rather than focusing on 10% people 10% 10% what we've ch- chosen to do is to focus more on two corinthians where it talks about each person should give what they've decided in their heart to give. So it's just a, a responsibility that we each have before God. And, and we want to avoid Phariseeism or whatever the phrase is. We want to avoid legalism. You know, Jesus does, says that thing where he says to the Pharisees, woe to you Pharisees because you're tithing even your mint and your cumin and your dill or whatever it is. It's like you're, you're even trimming the herbs in your window box to just make sure that you're giving exactly 10%, there's that voice again, of everything. And he says, but you're neglecting the more important aspects of a God-honoring life. And so we don't want to be legalistic. And we'd rather focus on grace. And, I don't want to say but, because that crosses out everything you've just said. And I've had the same conversation now several times in a row over the last few weeks when it comes to money. And the conversation has gone along the lines of, barry in my small group has recently become a christian and he doesn't know anything about anything and he's figuring out you know how do i live as a christian now i've not been a christian for 48 years and now i'm a christian and i just want to know just tell me what to do you know just tell me tell me how this works tell me what i should do. should i give one pound or a thousand pounds i've no idea and me just standing here and saying well you should just give what you've decided in your heart to give it turns out that the small group leaders and others are saying it's just it's just not helpful You need to give us more to go on. And so, like I said, I've had that conversation several times. And so the best way to answer the question that I can think of is to answer how Taryn and I have arrived at what we give. And that is to say this, that in the Old Testament, for the people of God when they were under the law, crikey, my time's going on. Anyway, for people who were under the law, the law said, it demanded of them that they would give a tenth of everything to God. And so, so all the fruit of their vineyards and their crops and all of that, they gave 10% of it all. In fact, some people would argue it was way more than 10%, maybe 23%, depending on how many different tithes that they had to give for various things. But they had to give 10%. Now, we're the New Testament people of God. We've been ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. We've been filled with the Spirit. We've been seated with Christ in heavenly places. We've been filled with an abundance of everything, you know, uh, who fills all things in every way and all of that stuff. We've experienced the extraordinary blessing of God. Wouldn't it be so strange for us as Christians to say, Brilliant, what that means is I get to spend an extra 10% on myself. It's impossible to imagine the early church when they fun- suddenly realise they're released from being under the law to suddenly think, brilliant, that means I get to be more selfish than I could before. And you don't see that with the Philippian church. You don't see them saying, fantastic, you know, we get to keep it all now because we're not under the law. What you see them doing is going way beyond their previous level of generosity to give to the the, you know partner in the gospel and to keep people alive and and so on and and so where Taryn and I have landed with it is that we're going to see 10% as um not as the law and not as a ceiling not as a kind of we'll try and get to 10% at some point but as a platform we'll say well we'll just start at 10% and then we'll ask the Lord from that point how much more how much further should we go And my encouragement to Barry in the small group, if you're listening, Barry, maybe you're a Barry or a a Barbara, is is maybe that would be a good place to start, to say, Lord, I'm going to set aside 10% of my income. I'm going to give that to uh, what you're asking me to give it to. And then how much further should I go? And we believe that God will provide for all of our needs as we do that. So giving beyond the tide. Never said that before. Controversial, perhaps. uh, But honestly, that's where I've landed with it. And um, the last, uh, so simplicity, generosity, last one is partnership. Partnership. If I, uh, let, let me just say, by the way, City Church pays me well, okay? You're, you're a generous employer. Thank you for being a generous employer, providing a pension and, and all of that, a, you know, nice place to work and everything like that. Um, but it, let's just say that I wanted to develop an alternative income stream, and I was just thinking that I might just start up a little business on the side. And let's just say, and this is never going to happen, but let's just say I decided to go into the fishing business. And so I went up to Peterhead and I investigated it all. And then I contacted a load of my friends. And I said, guys, what we should do is we should go into partnership together in a fishing business. And so let's all club our money together, pull our resources together, and we'll buy a couple of fishing boats, and then we'll buy some fishing rods. <laughs> <laughs> or nets or something I don't know whatever you need you know waterproof over trousers uh, we'll buy all you know, with those funny hats we'll buy all of that and then we'll go out fishing at, you know on our days off or something like that and we'll, we'll generate some income what you've got there is a fishing business you've got a, a business partnership you've got a partnership and in fact that's the the, the language that's used of um, the, the, the disciples when they were called by Jesus and um, you know uh, peter and andrew or simon and andrew james and john they had a fishing partnership a fishing business that's what it says in luke chapter 5 verse 10 um, simon says to jesus go away from me i'm a sinful man and it says that, that he was astonished at the catch of fish and so were james and john simon's partners and and the, Clearly what he's referring to is that they're part of a business partnership. They're looking after the boats together and when there's a need, they're providing that need together. They've got that responsibility. It's the same word that's used throughout the book of Philippians for this idea of sharing together in the ministry of the gospel. And so in Philippians 1 verse 4, Paul says this, In my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. And what he's meaning is, because you've been funding my ministry in the gospel. You've been, you know, we've all been in this together. You've been helping to provide the resources for me to plant churches in all of these places. And he it, it goes on in today's passage, verse 14. It was good of you to share in my troubles. And it's the same word, partnership. To partner in my troubles. Verse 15. When I set out from Macedonia, not one church partnered, shared with me in the ministry except you only. So, from where they are in Philippi, their money is going all over the known world. And the gospel is, is, is going out all over the place. Churches are being planted. The poor are being fed. Paul's there in prison in Rome in another city, in another country. And he too is being supplied by their generosity. It's partnership. The language of partnership for me is, is, is like the critical reason why Taryn and I give almost all that we give to this church because this is the family business and together as a family we plant churches in Sri Lanka and we we rescue abandoned babies in Kenya and we, we, um, we prevent sex trafficking in Cambodia and we preach the gospel to thousands of children in assemblies in Aberdeen and the Shire and and we sit with people who are bereaved and we, we develop people in their leadership gift and so on and so on. We do all of that together because what we've got here is a family business. We've got a partnership. And we can do so much when we all decide. Once we've decided before God how much we're to give, when we give generously to the mission of a local church, we can do so much. And that's why we've decided to do what we do. Let me just make a couple of practical notes and then I'll finish. The first one is, if you're a a member of this church, you need to know that no one who's in any position of leadership in this church knows who gives or how much you give. It's, It's just between you and the Lord and our accountant just keeps track of it. So it's an anonymous thing between you and God. That's the first thing. The second thing is, we would encourage as many people as possible who are part of this church to give by standing order where possible. What that means is you communicate with your bank, You're usually over the internet. You say, I want to put this much money into the City Church's bank account every month. And um, what that means is when you go on holiday, your money still comes to church because <laughs> we've still got bills to pay even when you go on holiday. So we would really appreciate if you did that. It helps us to budget. It's really, really useful for us. It helps also you to be committed and deliberate in the way that you give. And the last thing is, if you could give by stand... Uh, when, you, when you give fill in a gift aid form and and the chancellor of the exchequer writes us a big check every month or every couple of months uh, gives us back the tax that you paid he gives us that money as well and so it adds 25 percent onto your gift if you're a taxpayer let me say as well if you're a higher rate taxpayer and and um, often we don't communicate this if you pay a higher rate of tax we can only claim the first 25 percent of the tax that you paid you can claim the next part back on your tax return and if you don't fill in a tax return you can get a separate form and you can fill it in that way and you can get that from or you can speak to our finance team and they'll help you with that but it's important that we just maximise the money that we're giving as far as possible let me just finish with this I I wonder what you think the, the net result is for the Philippians of their generosity you know you can imagine for Paul he's in prison that's not a fun place to be he knows that at some point his life will come to an end. And yet, when he received it, receives this gift, it has an amazing effect on him. It says in verse 10, I rejoiced greatly when I received your gift. It's like I was filled with joy. I was bouncing around my prison cell, I was so thrilled. So, so he receives joy. But also, you would imagine for the Philippians, they've given even beyond their ability to give. You can imagine that they're living with enormous sense of regret. Like, oh, I can't believe we gave all of that. How are we going to eat now? How is this going to work? Oh, I wish we hadn't given that money. And you would imagine that they're sitting in Philippi really depressed too. But they're not depressed either. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, it says, Yes, there's severe trial. Yes, there's extreme poverty. But where there's rich generosity, there's overflowing joy. And if I could leave you with one thought, whether you're in one of our sites or you're here, it's this. If you want to know deep and lasting joy in your life, not just contentment, which we talked about earlier, but overflowing joy. Embrace a lifestyle of generosity and you'll find out what joy really means. Why don't we stand?